obviously as a silent protagonist, he's designed to be someone that you can project yourself onto. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of us in the trans masculine community um, specifically have loved Link because he portrays a kind of masculinity that isn't dependent on uh, hyper-masculine stereotypes to be seen as valid. That heroism doesn't have anything to do with gender or sex, that someone can be can be read as either and still seen as, you know, priceless and integral, an integral part of human life. Uh, we need those reminders more than ever. Welcome to Pixel Therapy, the video game podcast where we look at the games we play through the lens of the player, where what you play is just as important as how you play it, and where emotional intelligence is a critical stat. I'm your co-host, Jamie, pronouns she, her. And I'm your co-host, Spencer, pronouns they, them. And this is Pixel Therapy. Let's start the episode as we always do with our Patreon shoutouts. These are a special thank you to everyone who subscribed at the, our Patreon name in the credits tier for the month of May. Uh, so that's a very big thank you to Genevieve, Lindsay, Jackie, Pimatai, Adiyinka, See The Mess, Ava, and Sammy. Thank Thanks. you all so much for your continued support of the podcast. Remember, if you want to get your name in the credits, you can hop on over to patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod where you can subscribe for as little as just two dollars a month and get access to our monthly bonus series we just released our june patreon bonus episode last week uh, where we talked about dredge diablo 4 and all the new games we're excited about following summer games fest week so it does sound like things you want to hear us talk about or if you're just looking for a little more pixel therapy in your life <laughs> uh, come check out the patreon and you'll get access to over 20 bonus episodes of the podcast mm-hmm. Um, there's so much good content treasure there, trove. or at least we think so. <laughs> yeah, treasure trove. Um, so yeah, come check that out if that's of interest of you. And if you already subscribe or if you're looking for a way to show your support for free, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Every review matters there for a small podcast like us. And know that no matter how you choose to engage with us, we appreciate you being here all the <laughs> same. All right, folks, it's time to get cozy to pull up an armchair. Feel free to lie down on the couch. Let's talk about our feelings. Spencer, how are you today? Jamie, I know you don't like reality TV, but if you get (laughs) bored or you have a sudden personality change, (laughs) I urge you Uh to watch Ultimatum Queer Love on Netflix. (laughs) I... Can't, but okay. But tell, go ahead and tell me all about it. it is I'll, I'll live vicariously. It you. is mess. That's all I have to say about it. It is mess, and it is everything. <laughs> everything we needed this Pride Month. Um, I have no words. I think, especially watching it from the perspective of being an intense therapy for the past two years, <laughs> it's just an exercise in. You need therapy, and you need therapy, and you need therapy. And also, thank you for bringing all of this mess here for us to take in. But um, oh my god, I won't try to bore you with the with the lives and woes of of a bunch of lesbians <laughs> you've never heard of. But I will say, my next question is: Are you watching The Bear season two? 
Yes, so that that's the hot mess that I've been watching, in which also everyone needs oh therapy. Yeah, just a different mess. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> just a different type of mess. Um, I'm here for the scripted mm-hmm. mess. Yeah, no, I've been watching The Bear. Uh, we're like three episodes into the second season. Yeah. Uh, and we did a rewatch of the first. Well, it was a rewatch for me. My partner hadn't watched the first season of The Bear because he had COVID oh, well, uh, when I right. watched it. Unfortunately, that was like my, he's sick. I've got to pick something yeah. else to watch. And I believe <laughs> the entire season in like a night <laughs> um and so when it was coming when it got announced that the second season was coming i was like we should watch this because i want to rewatch it anyway and i feel like you would like mm-hmm. it um and he's into it so yeah we we watched the whole first season and then started the second uh, and it's so good it's everything i love the way that show is almost it's not quite but there's something that feels a little bit experimental about the way that it's all shot and put together Mm-hmm. Like it yeah. feels rough, but not unfinished. It it's just really yep. interesting. It's it feels fresh. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, there's such an underlying intensity to mm-hmm. the show, which I I know is something that that's carried forward from the first season too. Uh, for folks not in the know, the bear is a show starring Jeremy Allen mm-hmm. White and Ao Edebiri. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. how you say your last name? Um, and it's focuses on a like small, like kind of greasy spoon uh, restaurant called the Beef of the original Beef of Chicago. Um, in the first season, uh, the main character, played by Jeremy Allen White, has uh, inherited this restaurant that has been passed down through his family um, from his brother, who unfortunately committed suicide before the show begins. And so it's all about him trying to, you know, and the restaurant's like, it's in disrepair. Um, The staff that works there, they're very much a family, but like a super dysfunctional Mm -hmm. family. Um, Folks are grieving over the loss of the previous owner and, and, you know, Jeremy Allen White, that being his brother. And everyone needs therapy. And yeah. it's, I don't know, it's a show that's as much about family and uh, the stress that's put on folks working in kitchen, both like simple kitchens and then like the higher level stress that's put on people who are trying to aspire to become chefs and mm. what that the culinary world looks like. Um, and it's also about, yeah, how people can like learn to take care of each other and become better people. Mm-hmm. And it's just a really good show. Yeah. But they do these things like really intense close ups. Um, <laughs> On the food, like there's lots of beautifully shot and delicious looking food in the show. Um, But there's also things like where two characters are having a really intense, like stress laden conversation about something while one character is chopping vegetables at Mm -hmm. a mile a minute. And the camera is just cutting back and forth between a really close (laughs) shot of the knife flying over the vegetables and then the characters faces as they're getting more and more heated. And you're just like, oh, my God, you're perpetually like afraid someone's going to get a knife in the throat. And that never happens. No. Um, But the tension that the show creates and how it understands what both what it's like to work in a kitchen and also what it's like to have really dysfunctional like family and workplace family dynamics like that is it's really cool yeah you've i mean you've really nailed it just the 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 tension of potential violence or danger Mm -hmm. always hanging over everything Um, and it's like the violence that actually ends up happening is so rarely physical it is almost always these characters like being kind of emotionally abusive to each other recognizing it and then trying to reconcile with Mm. that after Mm. the fact um, mm-hmm. both reconcile, you know, as the person who got abused, like reconcile their feelings about that and whether or not they want to continue with this thing that they love that is also harmful to them. And then the person who caused the harm trying to 
trying to figure out how they're going to do better yeah. and hold themselves accountable to next time. And I think the show does a good job of showing steady growth while still understanding that like people who are in this place are going to keep fucking it up even as they're trying to improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, uh, it really hits cause it's the concept of what goes on behind closed doors in the culinary industry is just fascinating on its own. Mm-hmm. And you have these characters that are so focused on the thing they love, the thing that they're passionate about, that there isn't too much room in terms of what the characters care about for you to get to know who they are individually if you're not paying attention. But because the show is so visually rich and it's like every scene, I mean, these are these are like 30 minute episodes and they mm-hmm. are packed to the brim. To the point yeah. where, like, you could rewatch an episode and, and get different takeaways each time. But I really enjoy how much you learn about the characters through little moments or set dressings that you could miss if you're just paying attention to, like, the meat of the conversation that's taking place. Like, for mm-hmm. example, you know, seeing in Jeremy Allen White's apartment that, like, he doesn't cook at home because his oven is full of really nice designer denim that he that he stores in his oven because that's the safest place and it's like okay i've learned a he doesn't cook at home because he never uses his oven and b Uh like he cares very much about high quality simple things like this designer denim that he doesn't let go of even though he's you know not rolling in dough as as a professional chef or Mm -hmm. um Ayo Adabiri's character, um, you know, sitting at a restaurant, dining alone and looking up and watching a mother and child interact and and a look passes over her eyes and you remember that she's lost her mother at some point in her life and that she's maybe yearning for that kind of connection. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like these little things that pop up. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this show is so good. Just watch the show. It really is. It really is. <laughs> go check out The Bear. Hopefully we're not telling you anything you don't already know. So, but if you haven't watched it, go check it out. It's on Hulu. Yeah, it's on Hulu. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but yeah, maybe we should talk about video games. Right, that is right. the uh, kind of the premise <laughs> of this silly little podcast. Um, Spencer, I think folks are going to be surprised when they see Shocked the title of this even. episode, when they realize that we're about to discuss today. Maybe they're even going to be expecting us to really take this game down. Oh, um, well, just I feel like you and I are notorious at this point, probably for our dis- dislike. <laughs> of this game's predecessor. Yeah. Um, And bearing the lead here, we are going to talk about Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom today. Despite neither Spencer nor I really enjoying or even fully playing the predecessor, uh, Breath of the Wild. Best game ever made, apparently. Best game ever made until Tears of the Kingdom came out. Truth. So if you are living under a rock, Tears of the Kingdom is a 2023 action adventure game developed and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo Switch. It's a sequel to the 2017's Breath of the Wild, which sucked. JK. <laughs> <laughs> I just we're really the only people who off. think it sucks. <laughs> yeah, we're the only ones in the world. Um, I've heard some people say it's mid. There's people out there. There's dozens of us, and they're quickly silenced. <laughs> quickly silenced. Yeah. Um, Tears of the Kingdom is the twentieth game 
in the Legend of Zelda main Shit. series. Uh, the first being the Legend of Zelda, just the titular Legend of Zelda, released on February 1st, 1986 in Japan on the Famicom disc system. Um, and that release was followed a year later in August of 1987 with the North American release of the same game on the Nintendo Entertainment System. Ever heard of it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the series as a whole centers on Link, who is our main protagonist and the player character. And the narrative typically revolves around Link's quest to rescue the princess, Princess Zelda, and the land of Hyrule uh, from the series' main antagonist, known as Ganon, uh, or Ganondorf, depending on which of his two forms he takes. And in that regard, Tears of the Kingdom is not too different, really. Uh, it actually takes place just a few years after the events of Breath of the Wild, so it is a direct sequel to Breath of the Wild and takes place in the same version of Hyrule that Breath of the Wild uh, takes place in. Um, and at the start of the game, Hyrule is in a period of rebuilding following the events of Breath of the Wild. Um, but the appearance of Gloom, uh, this kind of dark, inky, black and red uh, goo, that's oozing out of the ground uh, and making people sick and causing them harm uh, results in Link and Zelda going to investigate in the depths beneath Hyrule Castle. And of course, catastrophe ensues in an event that leaves Zelda missing Link without an arm and the entire <laughs> land of Hyrule physically disrupted via an event that the people in the game moving forward will refer to as the upheaval, which has left a uh, giant gaping. Is it chasms or chasms? <laughs> Yes. This is one of those words that I've read but don't know how to say. <laughs> I've always said chasm. Huh. I've always said I've only I've only ever read it too. Chasms. <laughs> <laughs> wow, chasms. Uh it leaves big ass holes in the ground. Big old holes. <laughs> big old holes in the ground um as well Hashtag as ruins. <laughs> ruins falling from uh, way up above. Mm-hmm. So these th- these ruins falling from the sky that no one knew were up there. Um, and so the land is in upheaval, and Link must once again rise to the occasion to save Hyrule and the princess. And mm-hmm. that is our inciting event for Beautiful. The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Spencer, before we start getting into whether or not we liked this game or hated it <laughs> as much as Breath of the Wild... <laughs> Just really want people to come for us. Uh, what's your personal history with the Legend of Zelda oh, franchise? Wow, the series that is older than both of us. Yes, oh me my gosh. by less time than you. <laughs> but yeah, so wow. You know, it's funny playing this game. Definitely opened up some long dormant memories for me. Um, I was absolutely a Nintendo gamer when I first picked up a controller at around the age of five. Um, my first first Zelda game was actually Ocarina of Time, um, mm. which I played, oh my gosh, I was maybe eight or nine when I first picked up that game. Um, and I think it's an appropriate game to start with because in that game, you actually start out as Link as a child, um, and you sort of grow up with him and learn a bit more about him. Um, and you enter this mysterious world as a child and kind of discovering it very much like themes of coming of age and, and rising from a literal child to the hero of Hyrule. Um, and I think back then, um, I, I think some of this still is felt in these more contemporary Zelda entries, but it was like back in the day when games still felt somewhat impenetrable or like they mm. were holding real secrets. Like, 
like those kind of Zelda games were the ones where the world, the scope of the world was small enough that you could run around hitting every tree until you manage to knock one down that unlocks a secret room that is not written down in any guide. And we didn't really mm-hmm. have, we weren't really using the internet back then to talk about games on forums. So it was just like, you had to just stumble across shit. Mm-hmm. And I just remembered spending hours, um, you know, like I feel like Zelda was my special interest for a while when I was a kid. Like I would journal about it. I would draw endless pictures about it. I would buy physical copies of guides because that was a thing that we were that we used to do um, and pour over them um, and try to just unlock the secrets that I knew were living in this game. Um, and it, just bringing that sense of exploration and adventure out into the real world. Like those are the kind of memories I associate with Zelda. I remember um, I used to receive Nintendo power magazine and um, there was an ad in the magazine where you could write your address on a little coupon and mail it in. And they would send you a, a life-size ocarina, uh, which oh was God. like the instrument that, that link uh, plays kind of, kind of like a flute in the game. Um, <laughs> and I got it and I remember learning how to play it. And I was able to play some of the themes from the game. I still have that ocarina floating around somewhere, but um, you know, gotta bust was, that out. I know I gotta find that thing. <laughs> it was just such a huge it had a it had a hold on me as a kid. Um, I remember my next big Zelda game was Twilight Princess, which I came which came out uh, I believe in two thousand and six, and that was a game where uh, Link uh, actually is cursed and he turns into a wolf, uh, and oh. you're playing as this wolf that has like shackle like you're you break free of these chains and you have like these these shackle chains and shackles coming off of you and you're this badass wolf. Yeah, this was hot. I'm like, thanks to Legend of Zelda, I figured out that I was both queer and a furry. So, like, thanks. <laughs> um, but you know, I I read some time ago that um, Link was actually named that because um, he is supposed to be the link between the player and the world of the game, oh. and he's purposefully designed in a way that. Uh, you can sort of project your own experience onto um, because this is a game where everyone can can take on the mantle of hero and everyone can rise from being a nobody to the celebrated eternal hero. And I think that's something that a lot of us who are Zelda fans can sort of have sort of always loved about this series is that like over and over through time, through different permutations, there's still that same core um, romantic, tragic um, but ultimately, like, also, um, innocent adventure uh, of becoming. Uh, and I think just so many of us can relate to, especially like queer and trans folks, which we can talk a bit more about later. But yeah, I have a long <laughs> history with The Legend of Zelda, but this is my first Zelda game that I've played in over 12 years, maybe 15 wow. years. And that just feels really momentous because I really couldn't get into Breath of the Wild. But I'm I'm really happy to be loving Tears of the Kingdom so much. It means a lot to me, more than I thought it would when I was like more than I, I'm talking about it now. And I'm kind of like, oh wow, this actually is really, really big deal to me. <laughs> um so yeah, that's my history with Legend of Zelda. Um 
<laughs> not to <laughs> not to just pass it over to you, but I think uh, maybe yours might be a little shorter. But what's your history? Yeah, with mine's, the game? mine's a little shorter. Uh, I've heard of the series. Yeah, I've known that it's it's a thing. I growing up did not have Nintendo. We didn't have Nintendo systems mm. in the house. We were a Sega house and then PlayStation. So I definitely don't have the nostalgia or or even the history when it comes to a lot of the core. Nintendo franchises. I didn't really play the Mario games growing up. Didn't really play Zelda. Um, I know. I'm not a real gamer. You heard it here first. Uh, We have both sides of the spectrum here. (laughs) Yeah, you get both sides. Spencer, real gamer, has played (laughs) the games. Me, not a real gamer. (laughs) Has not played anything. Grew up playing Madden. Um, Wow. Yeah, I know. I know. I'll turn my I'll unplug my mic now. I'll send back my my uh, my podcaster license. Um, But yeah, anyway, hadn't played any of the Zelda games Uh, had seen. I had a friend who I saw like playing one of the ones on GameCube and was like, oh, Mm. that looks cool. You're riding a horse. Um, (laughs) But never had them, never played them when Breath of the Wild was coming out. And, you know, that coming out right at the beginning of the Nintendo Switch launch as well. I definitely got caught up in the hype around that Mm. and got a copy of the game and tried it. And like I was really into it for like a weekend. And then... I just started to get more and more uh, disconnected from yeah. it as I played it. Um, unfortunately, like I don't have my the same switch that I had back then, so I don't have the official hour count of what I put into Breath of the Wild. My guess is that it was twenty hours, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more, but probably thereabouts. I, like it was like a good week that I spent with the game, which I know it's a huge game and there's so much more you can do in the game, but I just felt a little aimless, a little lost and kept getting myself stuck in situations where I didn't have enough stamina to Mm -hmm. get out. Um, I kept like falling into lakes that I didn't have enough stamina to swim out of. I was really struggling with the, uh, the horse mechanics in the game and feeling like I wanted to have a horse, but then I would be on my horse for five seconds and then it wouldn't make sense to be on the horse anymore. And I'd climb a Way and then the horse couldn't come to me and I just I I started to get really frustrated and feeling like I couldn't make progress in the game I didn't really know where I was supposed to go I didn't really know what I was supposed to be doing I was getting my ass handed to me by any enemy I encountered and I just I stopped I didn't get it I felt disconnected from the world it was the game was quiet it was empty yeah. and I didn't uh I didn't resonate with the characters like there wasn't really, you know, Link is a silent protagonist. I, I want to talk about this more later on in our conversation mm-hmm. because it is something for me that is still it makes it harder for me to connect. I understand why he is designed that way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of beautiful things about his design, but it's just harder for me to connect with a silent protagonist. I didn't feel like I understood his motivations. And, and in Breath of the Wild, the main narrative is that you wake up without your memory. So he doesn't even right. understand his motivations. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't stick with Breath of the Wild. I didn't feel connected to it. I didn't understand why I was I should feel like I wanted to run around. And just the idea of exploring a huge world was not enough to pull me through. Mm. I've read a lot of reviews of Breath of the Wild. I know it's a game that was really beloved. It's held up as one of the best games of all time. But when I played it back in 2017, I didn't see it. I tried the game a few different times, tried to pick it back up, and still didn't see it, and it didn't connect with me. But that is really my only touchstone for this, uh, this you know, multi-decade-long franchise now. Yeah. Um, is Breath of the Wild. Whew. I'm so glad that Tears of the Kingdom came out. <laughs> me too. 
Me too. Because, uh, you know, not to spoil anything, but I think we both, I can say definitively that we both are really enjoying our time with Tears of the Kingdom. Fuck yeah. I am about 85 hours in, <laughs> and I have not beat the main story. No. <laughs> uh, I'm close point, behind your, you. You're close behind you. Uh, yeah, what's like your clock looking like? The Switch, it doesn't really give, at least if uh, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but the Switch doesn't really give you exact uh, playtimes for games. Yeah, it's kind of like a rounding thing yeah. that it does. Like, just tell me, bro. You obviously know. But yeah, um, it says 80 hours or more. Mm-hmm, <laughs> so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm right on your heels, even though I started playing it like three <laughs> weeks after <laughs> after you started. I really got into uh, it. <laughs> I, I got into Diablo 4 right, in the middle yeah. there. That definitely hurt, hurt things. But but yeah, um, so we've been playing the fuck out of this game and we are really loving it. Uh, and so the rest of this episode is going to be dedicated to talking about everything that we're enjoying um, and all of our experiences playing Tears of the Kingdom. Um, but just a caveat that, yeah, neither of us have finished the game. And frankly, I don't think this is the kind of game that you have to, quote unquote, beat it Mm-mm. or, quote unquote, roll credits to be able to have an opinion about. Because, yeah. I mean, at what point I've put you know more than we both put more than 80 hours into this game. And I think that that's worth saying something that we yeah. can do that much. Still not having completed the story and still are coming out right now being like, wow, this game is incredible. So. With that in mind, then. What are you loving about Tears of the Kingdom? Oh, man. I mean, one, I'll say I feel like it's safe for a few small complaints. I think it's really mastered this goal of truly offering a nonlinear adventure experience Mm -hmm. um, and unbridled exploration in a way that keeps encouraging you to do more and find more to do. Um, I really... You, there's this concept of markers in the game where you, like, you have these kind of binoculars you can use to zoom out and zoom in and and see locations far away and like drop a glowing marker on them that you can use to navigate. And I am using the heck out of those markers. You have six and I'm constantly Same. having to negotiate which one I'm going to let go of. Um, and maybe on my way to reaching one, I get distracted by something else. Like there is just truly and en- seemingly endless possibilities of activities um, and things to do in this game. And there's no one way to solve a problem. Um, I think this game just does a beautiful job of of really allowing you to, to solve puzzles or achieve milestones in ways that, that make the most sense to you. Um, and, and we can sort of get into like the specific mechanics, but I've just never felt such open possibility from a game and for such an, a canvas for creation. Like, I feel like really, I know you said this before too, so I'm be just taking this right out of your mouth, but like, I feel like the main thing <laughs> holding do. me back is my own creativity, like my own mm-hmm. uh, ability to look at something from a new perspective or even to stop overthinking it and just stick a bunch of logs together and build a bridge and call it a day. Like, I don't need to do something <laughs> super spectacular to like solve a problem. Um, it just feels like they really, thought through how to make everything work together in a way where uh, you're never having to do the same thing the same way twice. Like nothing feels tedious. Um, Even Mm -hmm. if the mission at hand is find 12 of these locations throughout the map and that's a side mission. It's like, okay, that sounds something that would be kind of boring in my typical open world game. I'm going to follow. I'm going to just ride to get there or use fast travel. 
And this is a game where I almost like prefer to not use fast travel. Like I'm notorious for trying to unlock fast travel as quickly as I can in any game and getting super annoyed with games like Horizon where it's like, I have to find a fucking campfire before I can uh, <laughs> go somewhere. Like, like I actually prefer just um, getting there on foot. And that's saying a lot for like for a, a, a game with such a, a vast world as this. Um, and I have to fucking say like the Nintendo Switch is what like eight years old at this point well and the switch came out the same time as breath of the wild so okay. it'd be 2017 okay right? okay so six years yeah i mean shit the fact that i'm this... and it was it was outdated a little bit at the time that yeah, it released too yeah. um, it did not have the same kind of power that the the other current consoles did when it came out yeah and and yet like this game for like i mean you know i think the fact that nintendo tends to lean on more um like we're not trying to go for like hyper realistic, uh, like next gen in terms of or what we consider to be next gen when we think of like graphical quality or or special effects or things like that. Like I think uh, the fact that it that it leans on a more cartoony, lower poly style like helps with this. But this game mm-hmm. for what it's doing and and what it's created feels very next generation gaming and and I can't deny that. Um, So I just feel like kudos to to Nintendo Switch for being able to carry this kind of title, Mm -hmm. which feels incredibly expansive and like an entirely different Hyrule than what was even in Breath of the Wild. So Mm -hmm. that's maybe some of my opening thoughts on the game. I will say I said to Jamie right before this that my thesis of today is I get it now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good thesis. And uh, I would also agree that I I get it now. I wonder (laughs) what... I, I've found myself being very curious what my experience would be to go back to Breath of the Wild mm. now, because I am, I do find myself wondering how much has actually changed from Breath of the Wild to Tears of the Kingdom versus how much I've changed mm. in the past six years as a gamer is what and what I'm looking for from a gaming experience and what I want out of it. I mean, at the time that Breath of the Wild came out, it was considered like really unique in yeah. terms of its design, the way that it was not handhold for an open world game. It was not, you know, you, when you pick up a quest, you don't get every marker for everything you need to do dropped on your map. Um, it mm. was asking you to do some of the work <laughs> to figure out where you needed to go and what you needed to do and asking you to actually listen to the things people were saying to you or not actually listen because it's text on a screen, but <laughs> read, understand what's being asked of you yeah. and make, you know, apply critical thinking to what needed to happen next as opposed to, well, just climb this tower and then you'll get a hundred markers on your map. No, instead it's climb this tower, you're going to be able to to see everything you put the markers on your map you decide <laughs> yeah. what looks interesting right you decide what looks interesting and figure out what you want to go do and in 2017 when i did that i was just like i i am overwhelmed there's mm-hmm. too many options so i can't decide what i want to do i was so annoyed by things like weapon durability yeah. and because this game you know your weapons break any mm-hmm. weapon you pick up it's gonna eventually break no matter how powerful it is no matter how good it is anything you pick up it's gonna eventually break uh you have to cook food for yourself to be able to heal yourself there's no just like finding magical potions mm-hmm. that are gonna heal you or anything like that you have to pick up you know it, 
pick tomatoes and apples and kill deer and then bring that stuff to a pot in a town and actually put the ingredients together (laughs) and experiment with that. It's not like you have a recipe book. It's like figure out which which uh, things you need to combine that make a meal that has the impact that you want it to have. Uh, You want to climb up that snowy mountain? Well, it's going to be pretty cold up there. You're going to have to either get yourself some warmer armor or maybe you can cook a meal that will Mm. give you cold resistance or maybe there's certain gems and stuff in the game that if you attach them to your shield you can there's just all these things that i'm pretty sure a lot of this existed in breath of the wild but in breath of the wild i reacted to it completely differently i felt overwhelmed uh i felt confused and unclear on what i needed to do and really the the only thing the only option I felt like I had was to keep walking or keep climbing. And then I felt limited yeah. by my own stamina meter, <laughs> yeah. right? Or the ability of my horse to go somewhere. And so I do think that one of the key differences with Tears of the Kingdom and what makes it, uh, I think, much more immediately accessible and digestible to get you over that hump of understanding how the game world works um, so that then you're excited <laughs> by the breadth of things on on offer to do as opposed to overwhelmed by them, I think is the abilities that they, yeah. they give you. And they give them, they give you the core ones right from the beginning. Like literally almost as soon as you have control of Link, you start to get your core abilities and you play through uh, what's essentially a tutorial uh, section of the game. It is a Sky Island. Um, I think... We're going to quote unquote spoil a handful of things in the very early game of Tears of the Kingdom here. I think anything mm-hmm. we're about to talk about has either been shown in trailers, shown in gameplay demos of the mm-hmm. game, or, or talked about extensively in the reviews. We're not looking to spoil anything like in terms of the story or anything that happens late game or anything like that. But if you're trying to go into Tears of the Kingdom with completely no knowledge about it, you probably shouldn't be listening to this conversation. Yeah. I'll just say before we, we talk anymore. Also, good so, luck to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Yeah. This- <laughs> (laughs) game has permeated everything um and particularly social media uh so you wake up you know you're on a sky island at the very beginning of the game and the sky islands are uh very high up in the air it's essentially a whole new map that's layered on top of the original hyrule map and i think this is one of the cool things that this game does is that you essentially have you have three tiers t-i-e-r-s of the kingdom (laughs) (laughs) that each give you a whole different map and world to explore Mm -hmm. and the the highest of those are the sky islands which are giant floating ruins in the air and the people of hyrule have become aware of these sky islands because as part of the upheaval big chunks of them started to crash to the ground but the sky islands uh proved to have a bunch of ruins and history from the zonai which were a people that originally inhabited hyrule and one of the final zonai um began the land of hyrule with uh, the hillian with a hillian queen and they like basically mm-hmm. are like the four founders of hyrule and like the the land and peoples that we know today in the modern era yeah. So the game starts you off up on this island and uh, over the course of kind of a short little quest chain that's like very tutorial in nature, 
um, with some cute little robot guys. Oh my gosh. <laughs> kind of so t- telling you uh, yeah. the information that you need to have and giving you your first weapon and stuff. Um, you get access to the powers of Ultra Hand, Fuse, Ascend, and Recall. And those are the four main abilities that you're going to have in the game. These are different than what Link has in Breath of the Wild. They actually take away all the powers that you had in Breath of the Wild. And instead, you get these abilities and you have them within, I mean, I don't know how long that's. Sky Island section took you, but, you know, less than three hours. Then the first few hours of the game, you have these four core abilities. Ultra Hand um, is essentially an ability that lets you pick up objects and move them around, rotate them, move them, place them, set them in different things. You can just kind of freehand pick them up with this magical (laughs) power that's um, almost like telekinesis, basically. Move things around. Uh, Fuse allows you to uh, take an object off the ground and attach it to either your weapon or your shield. Um, Or using Ultra Hand, you can attach to separate objects that you can move around to each other. Um, Fuse is very helpful for making shields that have interesting effects when enemies hit them um, and creating weapons that do more than their base damage. You get a lot of times you're connecting your weapon to fusing it to like a monster part. Um, mm-hmm. like a a horn or a tooth or something that fell off of a monster that you killed, and it will add a bunch of damage to your to your weapon or maybe increase its durability, things like that. Uh, Ascend, I love Ascend so much. Oh my and god! I also love the story Ascend behind so Ascend, <laughs> which I want to get into in a second. Yeah. But Ascend basically means that uh, if you are inside of a place that has land above it. Uh, land or structure above it. There's a roof above your head and it is within a certain distance. It's like close enough to you. You can use the ascend ability and you will link will shoot straight up. <laughs> and the fucking sound he makes is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but he basically goes straight up into the ceiling, thunk and like morphs through like the swims ceiling. through it. <laughs> swims through it as though it were like just water instead yeah. of, you know, solid rock or or whatever and appears standing at the top of the structure. Um, so it is like your get out of jail free card yeah. when you are deep in a cave and you just want to GTFO. <laughs> um, if you're, <laughs> yeah, it, it's come in handy so many times. I need to get up this mountain as quickly as possible. Let me just find an overhang yes. and then I'll ascend up. And it's just beep, it's instant elevator. Now, did you hear that ascend was originally a tool that they made for debugging the game? Oh my God. Stop. There was not an intention to put it in the game. Oh my God. But the developers found it so useful and fun <laughs> that they decided to put it in the game. That's fucking Doesn't amazing. Doesn't that totally recontextualize that tool? Yes. It's like, oh, obviously, this is just a developer tool. Yes. And because it's so, like, the amount of temples or puzzles I fucking cheesed by just looking for a spot where I can ascend <laughs> and totally skip the the intended puzzles that were thoughtfully put together for me like it all makes sense now <laughs> but the i feel like the and i there's one more power that i want to talk about so i'm derailing a little bit here but the what's so amazing to me about ascend and the fact that they decided to put that at the game in the game despite it being a debug tool despite it being something that is arguably game breaking quote unquote <laughs> in a lot of ways like i feel like that just speaks to the confidence of them knowing what they had yeah. and knowing that that was going to just make things more fun mm. mm-hmm. that rather than making people like because it's fun to cheese it. It's yeah. fun to to cheat it. It's fun to find a way around the puzzle. Yeah. Like it's it's 
cool if I fi- if I feel like I'm finding the established solution. But I can't. So, so one thing that we haven't really touched on with the, the Zelda games is that a key element of them is puzzle solving. Yes. Like they are action adventure games and specifically this modern iteration of them is super uh, exploration is super important. The huge open world games, but there are designated things, you know, shrines and temples and things of this nature, which are small kind of, well, the temples are very large, but they're contained areas that have puzzles built into them that you need to solve to achieve uh maybe it's kind of like a skill point sort of a thing or uh open up a boss fight or move the story forward or whatever there's different things tied to the puzzles um i don't know how many times so my partner's been playing the game too i don't know how many times i've done a shrine which is a contained puzzle area Mm come up with the solution and been like, oh, surely that was like the intended solution <laughs> that I don't even see how anyone could solve this a different way. Yeah. And my partner will be sitting there next to me, like totally surprised that what I'd done had even worked yeah. or like that that was a way to solve it because he'd done it a completely different way. Mm. That's really fucking special. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. really fucking special. Yeah. Um. And uh, Yeah. So I just think being like, Hey, here's this this ability that breaks the game a little bit. That's going to give people an an easy out and a way to like skip entire sections of the map or entire routes if they want to. But we feel strongly enough that we've got a really interesting game that people aren't going to want to just cheese their way through the whole thing, or that if they do, it's going to feel fun. Just throw it in there. Totally. Just throw it in there. Just give it to them. Why hold that back? I think it's so fucking cool. Yeah, and then too, like, like we were kind of touching on earlier, like, it's such classic Legend of Zelda vibes for that to be a thing. Because so much of these mm-hmm. earlier games, I mean, the earlier entries in the series were notorious for being incredibly difficult. Like, people still talk about how uh, the Water Temple in Ocarina of Time is, like, infamous for being one of the most difficult and detested dungeons of any video game of all time and Mm. the these games were built in a way where people would spend hours just looking for secrets and so having something like like ascend that's designed to help you find things that might be hidden or get through something in a way um that you hadn't thought of before or just like kind of breaking through that layer of mystery and and like finding a way through that like it just feels very quintessential in a way that it's hard to articulate but i totally agree with you it's it it just feels right and i love that story (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so great uh and then the final ability um the core ability that that you get in the the intro of the game is called recall and i recall is you know ultra hand infuse are great they're very utility based abilities i'm super impressed with ascend because it is this debug thing that they put in the game and i'm super impressed with recall because i don't understand how they could possibly make this fucking work what recall (laughs) does is that not all but a large number of objects in the game can be rewound Mm. almost any object that moves you can use recall on it to rewind its movement back in time. That might sound <laughs> like maybe that doesn't sound very impressive, <laughs> but the number of things, the physics that have to get built into that and the fact that that means every object in the game, including ones that you are not interacting with, like yeah. these are with especially with the Sky Islands, there are like rocks and things just falling from the ground at any time. The fact that you could just approach one of these rocks and that that rock has a memory 
Mm. of where it was before and that you can rewind that memory and use that to like as an elevator like climb on the rock that's sitting on the ground rewind it so it zips back up into the sky but they had to design that like all those rocks have to have that memory of where they came from and that the game runs smoothly (laughs) holding all of this information at any given time it's It's mind-boggling the first time i fucking figured that out i was like it was like a whole new world of exploration just <laughs> unfolded before my eyes. Ugh. Also, the first time I realized that like, if a monster is shooting a projectile at you, that you can fucking use recall on that thing and have it hit them right back in the face. Like, oh my god, there's just... Again, it's just like my own creativity holding me back from just playing with yeah. this game. And and the things you move too. That's that's what really mm. is like I can grab an object with Ultra Hand, move it all around in some wackadoo pattern, and then use recall on it and it will follow that pattern in reverse. I just I don't I don't understand enough about game development to know for sure that that's complicated, but it seems like it would be complicated to make it so that any object that moves in the game has the ability to remember the movement pattern that it traced for at least 30 seconds in the past. And like to just be constantly rewriting that information and remembering it and holding it. That seems complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like that that's a really big development feat um, from someone who knows nothing about development. Maybe it's super easy, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those are the main abilities that you get. And I think those abilities immediately open the world up. I mean, yeah. they're very OP. Uh, And as soon as you leave the tutorial island and make it back down to the main Hyrule, the other thing the game does is that it immediately uh, and regularly gives you uh like boxes of toys mm-hmm. uh, so the game the game has this premise that you know hyrulians are the hillians they're all trying to rebuild following the upheaval and so there's just construction uh <laughs> tools and materials left around at random intervals probably not very random actually like they're actually like really well spread out yeah yeah um and so you basically have uh, between that and what's called the uh, the Zonai machines, right. which are uh, remnants I don't want to spoil of too much. It's, advanced society, yeah, remnants of the advanced society that basically take the form of things like fans or uh, wheels. I don't, know, I don't wheels. <laughs> uh, they're things that are kind of closer to like modern day. There's like a rocket. Um, tools and and pieces of equipment that we would probably see in more modern day but within the context of the game these are actually from a society that was really advanced that's long since passed Mm. but you can encounter these materials in the world you can encounter them pretty frequently and there's also these large like zonai vending machines where you can input some materials and get back a bunch of zonai materials in like these capsules that you can open up and use in the world when you want to quickly be able to build something And so the game very much immediately gives you these really powerful tools and access to materials that you need to be able to use those tools. And again, it's like you said before, quoting myself back to me, (laughs) uh, I, the game immediately is like the only limitations you have here are your own creativity and the world is your oyster. Yeah. (laughs) Like go do what you want to do. And it was, it's very, it's a suit. The result is it's an incredibly empowering experience, which is the exact opposite of how I felt playing Breath of the Wild. Yeah, totally. And it's still like 
a difficult game. Like I think um, something that I struggled with early on was I had a pretty steep learning curve with all that there was to wrap my head around to be able to utilize the game to its full potential. And it's also things like like combat can be hard. Like I, I I'm someone mm-hmm. who really sucks at parrying, <laughs> and um, I think to be successful in this game, hand to hand combat really depends on that. Like you are one small person uh, facing down these hordes of monsters and old machines. And, um, you know, it's very common to get like one shot and you're dead, um, especially in the beginning of the game when you only have three hearts. Um, and as soon as I realized like, Hey, you don't have to just run headlong into these battles. Like you could build a contraption that maybe helps solve that problem for you, or actually you could just avoid it entirely. Like you don't have to go across this land, like fighting everything you see, like, everything just unfolded for me. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. it's made this very dangerous world so much more, like you were saying, uh, approachable and and you feel much more empowered. Um, I was telling Jamie, this is, it feels like playing baby Elden Ring um, because it's it's very open. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily say like, Hey, you're not ready to fight this monster. It just kind of like you die. And then it has a very forgiving revival system where it just takes you to it's auto saving pretty much constantly. So it just takes you right back to right before you face that monster with all of your items, all of the health you had before. Um, mm-hmm. Like you, it, like it's very forgiving in terms of like there's there's no there's no harm done if you if you die and get that game over screen. Um, but still, like uh, just that real is that dawning realization that like I could make this game what I wanted and it didn't have to be like this hack and slash kind of adventure. Um, like I could just do my own thing um, and either skirt enemies or or use these items at my disposal to make it a much more even playing field. Um, it, it made me excited to go out and explore in a way that I was very scared to do in Elden Ring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, I think uh, clicking on that comparison to Elden Ring for a second yeah. or sticking with that for a moment, the, I, I am someone that played a lot of Elden Ring, right? I put like a hundred odd hours into the game. Didn't beat the story, but Clearly, really loved the game, had a great time with it. One of my biggest complaints about Elden Ring is that for as cool as the world was and the lore of the world was, the only thing there was to do, no matter what, no matter Mm. where I went and explored, no matter where I found myself in the world, secret elevators, anything like that, anything cool I found, it was all just taking me to a fight. Yeah. That was it. The end all be all of everything was combat. Uh, Even if I found a chest, like 95% of the time there was not anything in that chest that I really wanted. Uh. <laughs> it was just combat. Like and and for a lot of players, for Soulsborne players, like that is the reward, right? Mm. Finding a cool boss fight um and then overcoming it is what's meant to be fun about those games and it, and it worked for me for a long time with the game, but it did eventually wear thin. And I think with Tears of the Kingdom, well, you know, you could argue, well, this is like an e- oh, it's easier Elden Ring or it's baby's Elden <laughs> Elden Ring, right? Um, because it takes a lot of those, a lot of the game design and world design principles that apply to Elden Ring apply here. And then Zelda is just making all that a lot more accessible. But I think more even than just being accessible, 
Zelda is giving you a lot more to do. Mm. Like there's so much more variety of things that you can do in the world uh, in Tears of the Kingdom than there was in Elden Ring by far. Yeah, Combat is one piece of things. You could play this game like Elden Ring where your whole mission is just to go around and kill the goblins. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's shrines and puzzles to solve. There's caves to explore and bubble gems to (laughs) to, uh, collect. There's... It, there's chests in the game galore, and the chests, by and large, have any variety of things in it. It was something that this was a th- again another thing with like Breath of the Wild. I remembered being so frustrated by the weapon durability system and feeling like. Mm. I'd get to a chest and I'd open it up and it's like, it's fucking arrows again. I don't need arrows. I need a better weapon, right? Yeah. Or opening the chest and then you do find a good weapon. It's like, great. Now I can't, I don't want to use <laughs> yeah. this because it's just going to break, right? right? This yeah. is an issue I always had with with uh, Breath of the Wild. But in this game, I think, and again, because I was able to get over that hurdle and starting to understand the game design and understand the loop that they're putting you in, I'm no longer bothered by the weapon durability. I'm no longer bothered by the fact that the chests can have such a myriad of things in it and sometimes mm-hmm. you open it up and it's a weapon that does 30 damage and but most of the time you open it up and it's five arrows and i'm like That's thank okay. christ because arrows yeah, are so god. hard to find in this game <laughs> thank god i need arrows and i'm no longer as bothered by the fact that the weapon's gonna uh it, it, a lot of this comes down to fuse but like yeah if that weapon that i find that does 30 damage uh, guess what? I'm I'm gonna fuse that with one of the most powerful monster parts I have, and that's gonna be my weapon that does like 80 damage, and that's gonna be my boss killer. Yeah, I'm gonna hang on to that for a boss. But I can make 15 weapons that do 30 damage. All I need is a stick and a monster part, <laughs> yeah. and I'm good to go. Right, and so it doesn't. I don't feel like I'm trying to hang on to these weapons mm-hmm. in the same way anymore. And the fact that the chest could have anything in it is like, well, whatever I find in there is going to be useful. Yeah. If it's a gem, I can sell it. If it's a bit of food, I can use that and cook it into a thing. If it's arrows, great. I always <laughs> need more fucking arrows. And if it happens to be a weapon, uh, great. I'll add that to the inventory and I'll attach a cool monster part to it and we'll be good to go. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what's in the chest. What's fun is figuring out how I'm going to get to the chest and open it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And God, yeah, like uh, you, you were talking a bit about Fuse and just how it's really solved the frustration of what was in the previous game, this dread of like, oh, fuck, I know this weapon is going to leave me soon. And I'm going to have to scrounge around for something else like this concept of Fuse and how you can literally fuse anything, like even the fucking rocks that fall from the sky that you can ride up, you can fuse those those guys too to, to stuff um <laughs> you can fuse parts of bosses you're fighting to like throw them off uh you can like it really just the more you play with it the more exciting it is to be constantly cycling through weapons like i'm almost like oh i can't wait to see what kind of weapon i can make next instead of oh no i'm gonna lose this weapon and that is just pure you know user experience design gone right that they took something that was dreaded in a previous game and made it something to look forward to in the next like like what more can you ask for from iterative development like that's something to nerd out about just from a like how shit's made kind of perspective but too mm-hmm. like i had mentioned the the difficulty in in fighting earlier and how that was something that would typically turn me off from a game like this but in this game like the prospect of getting like a lizalfo tail or like a cool horn from or or helmet helm from like a construct like 
I'm actually sort of like, ooh, a passing rove of enemies. I kind of want to jump into the fray because I might get some cool stuff that I confuse. Like the fact that the thing that used to repel me from this type of game is now something that I look forward to because of what it's given me in terms of shit to play with. I'm just, mm-hmm. my mind is blown by that turnaround and yeah. I just can't commend it enough. Well, and and to your point with the, the com about the combat earlier, uh, one complaint that I have about the game and, and like for as much as the tutorialization on the sky Island with your initial abilities, I thought was really well done. There are weird places where the game just doesn't tell you how things work that I feel mm. like is just a bad decision. I don't know if I would call mm. it bad game design, but just a bad decision. One of those specifically is with with the combat. The only thing you learned on the on the original Sky Island Island is like how to put your shield up and how to swing <laughs> your weapon. Yeah, that's it. Like, do, you know, how to shoot an arrow doesn't give you any more details about how combat works. Instead, if you want to learn things like parrying and dodging, uh, you have to encounter a shrine that's like mm. in your path. It's in your main path. If you follow the main quest, like it's right there. If you're pr- you're going to walk right past it. You're probably going to do it. But if you don't do that shrine or if you don't jump right into the main quest, mm. you're not going to know how to parry or dodge. Now, true. Can you get through the game without knowing those things? Yeah, absolutely. I don't parry. I don't. Nice. I don't dodge. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not nice. doing that. Uh, I'm designing a weapon that can do a lot of damage. I'm waiting for an opening, and I'm just running in and smacking the shit out of the enemy. Or I'm throwing a bomb at them. Or I'm throwing a white choo-choo jelly, which freezes yeah. <laughs> them. Like Stuff like this. I'm finding different ways to uh, to like make an entry for myself that isn't parrying because I think the parrying mechanic is kind of shit, but I think it's kind of silly that they put that in a shrine that you could easily miss Mm. rather than just showing the player it. And the only reason I can think for doing that is that they want you to experiment a bit before you learn those basic mechanics because they are so avoidable but then it's like then why i don't know why have them in the game like that feels like Mm. a weird there's a something weird happening there Mm. that doesn't quite fit together for Mm. me um with those some of those combat mechanics because combat is a a huge part of the game but like it really can be so easier so hard yeah depending on how you approach it and if you approach it in a really straightforward manner like you were you were describing you were doing initially you're going to have a bad time pretty quickly, <laughs> <laughs> pretty quickly. Uh, you're going to get your shit rocked. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think some of that, they could have been a little more, I don't know. They could have encouraged a little more experimentation with that and maybe opened some of those tools up a little more directly totally. for, for players. Yeah. 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 No, this is a that's, game. That's one that, of my few yeah. complaints. Yeah. It's like ex- exploration is not just encouraged. It's kind of a requirement to really get the mm-hmm. most out of this. Um, that that's a, that's a great point. Like um, you're going to have a hard time if you're, if you're, if you're not getting <laughs> off the beaten path a bit. Yeah. Uh, speaking of exploration, then um, fuck this world is huge. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of your, some of your favorite things to do? Like, what are you finding rewarding about the the exploration and, and getting out there in the world? Yeah. So I knew that the sky islands were a thing and that the surface world was a thing. Mm-hmm. The second that I realized there was a whole third full ass map in the depths <laughs> underground. That was when I think my mind fully exploded. 
I was just like, <laughs> this shit just keeps going. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, I, I think I told you at first, like, I was very scared of the depths. Like, you are literally mm-hmm. dropped down, down, down to a not near endless chasm. <laughs> and, and also, um, like, that's another technical, like, wowie thing mm, that they do. The way the those scale. three worlds are stacked on top of yeah. each other, the scale of them, and the fact that it seamlessly loads uh, just yes. in the time that it takes Link to fall mm. between the worlds. Mm-hmm. Sorry, keep going, but I just no, wanted to insert yeah. that real quick. It's like the technical, it. uh, it's, it's so impressive yeah. how seamless that is to move between the three. Again, I love that it's the Tears of the Kingdom and the Tears of the King. Yeah. T-I-E-R-S, T-E-A-R-S. It's great. It's Continue. so good. No, yeah, like, I I think, again, I'm just endlessly giving credit to this game for giving me a space to explore things that would normally turn me away or scare me. But I think I was, I remember telling you early on, like, oh my God, I don't know about this, this depth situation. Like, you're dropped down. It is literally pitch black around you. You are deep, deep underground. Um, you have these items you can find called bright bloom seeds and you literally are Hansel and Gretling your way through this <laughs> underground world, dropping seeds behind you to give you little bursts of light, just enough to understand the shapes of things around you. There could be monsters coming at you in the dark. Um, there could be, you know, cliffs, uh, that you fall down. Like you really don't know. Um, and you can sort of, um, Walk around and f- until you find these dormant, uh, they're called light roots, and they correspond. Um, I mean, I, I mean, again, mind boggling. Like you sort of learn over time that for each shrine that you encounter on the um, surface world, underneath each one is a corresponding light root, and when you yeah. touch that light root, it sends out a massive it's like a lighthouse basically and lights up a certain perimeter around you and so that's your way of uncovering the map uh in the depths um and lighting up a big enough area that you don't have to be shooting out these seeds left and right to see your path um and at first i was i was very wary of the depths um but it's the best place to find certain materials that you can use to upgrade your weapons or upgrade um, this like battery that you have that, that can power the, the constructs that you build um, using, using Zonai devices um, for traversal or weaponry or what have you. Um, and there's also, um, <laughs> in the depths, there is a proliferation of bomb flowers, which are this rare kind of uh, plant that uh, you can attach it to arrows, you can throw it, but it it's a powerful explosion. Uh, you can use it to break through rocks and caves or take down bosses. Um, but I was using them willy-nilly in the beginning of the game before I quickly realized that they're much <laughs> scarcer than I thought they were. Um, so I was like, Whoopsie. well, fuck, <laughs> I've got to go in these depths and fucking find these bomb flowers. Um, and quickly, I started to just really enjoy it. Like, I, I think... Um, Again, part of the accessibility of the game is that, like, you can fast travel your way out of a situation uh, whenever mm-hmm. you're feeling threatened. Like, mm-hmm. even if you're in the middle of a boss battle, you can leave. Um, even, uh, you know, there are certain enemies that are very powerful uh, called Lionels. They're kind of like horse dudes. Um, but, like, but yeah, like, they're like centaur lions. Yeah, like centaurs. <laughs> yeah, centaur lions. Yeah. 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 But it's like, if you... Um, until you draw your weapon, they actually won't attack you. I didn't realize this. 
Um, but mm. you can just walk right up to them. And as long as you don't have your weapon drawn, like they're very honorable and not going to just come for you. Um, so there's a ton of those guys down there, but like, it's not that big a deal if if you're going about it uh, in a safe way. And, <laughs> and this like surprising myself, I started getting really into just exploring the depths. Like it truly feels like, again, that feeling of, of mystery and exploration that is so core to these games of just like there's a world with its own language and its own history and its own depth. Um, and you don't know all of it either because your memories have been taken away or there's, there's relics in a language that no one understands yet, or there's mysteries that have been laying dormant for centuries and you are discovering them now. Like it just, it gives you that. And so I've, I've, mm-hmm. I'm really into exploring the depths, trying to hit light roots and light them up. I, I, again, I think I've been, to answer your question, I've been most interested in the kind of world building side quests more so than like the main storyline. Like I too mm-hmm. am 80 plus hours in and I'm still only three quarters of the way through the first major main quest. Um, yeah. And that's just because I've, I've gotten really into like, the towny drama that you encounter at the different <laughs> villages or the um, there's all these floating ruins that have these mysterious tablets. And I've gotten really into taking pictures of those and working with a historian to decipher them. I've gotten really into hitting all the shrines or finding all the light routes and just really enjoying traversing the land, um, even on my own two feet, taming a horse, maybe riding with them for a while um, using ascend or, or recall to get to a really high place and then seeing where I can paraglide. Like that's where so much enjoyment, aimless enjoyment is for me. And that is just so new of a thing for me in a game like this. Yeah. Yeah. I, the game feels, uh, in, and again, I, I just, I wonder what going back to breath of the wild would teach me, uh, as to whether or not this is a, uh, if I'm misremembering Breath of the Wild, or ha- but there's a there's a vibrancy and an interconnectedness to the world in Tears of the Kingdom yes. that I don't recall feeling in Breath of the Wild. Same. In fact, in Breath of the Wild, I felt very alone mm-hmm. and isolated and confused. Again, yeah. coming back to that feeling of overwhelmed, confused, not empowered, lost <laughs> yeah. that, that I felt with Breath of the Wild that I don't have with Tears of the Kingdom. I feel like there's constantly something else in Tears of the Kingdom to move on to. And the way everything relates back to each other relates back to the history of Hyrule, um, the speed with which I can move from a sky island to the mainland down to the depths. It it all just makes it so seamless. And I constantly feel like I'm being drawn to the next thing. Um, there's a quote that I wanted to share from uh, Carolyn Pettit's uh, Legend of Zelda review that mm. she wrote for Kotaku, um, where she's talking about this kind of interconnectedness of, of the world. And she writes that in Tears of the Kingdom, I wander alone. And yet the game always makes me feel deeply connected to Hyrule and thus to all things. I hunt, I forage, I use the bounty of one region to aid me in another. I build, I create, I destroy, I witness... I take photos and catalog Hyrule's wildlife. I soar and I spelunk. I help a guy put up signs. (laughs) Some games are so player-focused that you feel like it's all about you, like the world revolves around you. In Tears of the Kingdom, you feel that there is a vast tapestry of life going on around you, and you are just one part of it, as much a part of it as anyone else. I prefer this feeling. 
I, and I think that really touches on something that I found to be both so starkly different than the feelings I had about Breath of the Wild and what has really kept me going with this game for over 80 hours, mm. despite not completing the main story, despite not having that narrative hook. I don't I don't I, I think the story is interesting, like the bit of story, the main story that I've experienced has been interesting and I feel compelled to proceed with it. But the entire world is full of story mm. and full of characters who feel interesting and who have interesting problems. And even when I'm not being pulled through with a narrative, I'm being pulled through with my own desire to explore a shrine and solve the puzzle or find a new area that might have its own narrative to, to put together. And that in both the way that every object in the game has a memory of the movement that it's taken. Mm -hmm. It's like the entire land of Hyrule has this, this memory. Like it all feels very lived in and steeped in its own history mm. in, in a way that's just like very cool. It's not something I've experienced in a video game world before. Oh my God. Yes. All of that. First also, can I say the writing that has come out um, from reviewers and just like the think pieces coming out and the sort of meditations on the game. I'm being moved to tears left and right, just <laughs> reading what people have been writing about this game. And I, and I think that that speaks to what you're feeling too from this. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think all that, that quote you just read from Carolyn's article definitely hits. Um, I think too, like in breath of the wild, Link wakes up with no memory of who he is. He has no idea mm -hmm. uh, what he's doing, why he's there. Um, the land of Hyrule is very empty, lonely, and desolate. Uh, and it's a game that is pretty steeped in this kind of melancholic feeling. I feel like by the time we get to Tears of the Kingdom, you know, the land of Hyrule has just reclaimed itself from this horrible calamity. And it feels like there's a resilience there. There's this mm -hmm. unwillingness to give up what was just so hard won back. Like you walk around and you see travelers like you crossing the land. You see people who are actively rebuilding. Um, you see other adventurers or, or just common people who are just like, you know, I don't want like, like, we're not going back. Like we're here and mm -hmm. and we're not going anywhere. Like, and you see too that uh, you know, some there was the event where you and Zelda were lost in the beginning of the game. Link comes back and some time has passed, maybe a few days to a few weeks. And it's like people have started fig forming camps or forming task forces or forming monster hunting parties to try to figure out for themselves what's going on. There's search parties looking for the princess. Like people are, it, it feels like they're inspired by what transpired in the last game and feeling empowered themselves to kind of go out and, and solve this mystery. And they're, they're happy to have you back, but it's not that they don't need you, but they're not like wholly depending on you to be the end all be all hero and save the day. And I feel like it lends this, there's just this energy of like resilience moving through this game um, that just makes it feel so much more full of full of hope. I think what you said about the like the land holding all of that history that feeds into it too. Like it just feels so much more alive than Breath of the Wild. And mm -hmm. you, as a player, as Link, having you know maybe it's the fact that you do have 
have memories of who you were, at least over the past few years. You do have relationships with people who remember you and are your friend. Um, like you have these connections. Like it just feels so much more communal and uplifting than that than Breath of the Wild did. Like I don't know. I just ugh, everything you're saying just hits. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what, what you're saying right now, too, is reminding me of this. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, but yeah. I one thing is I was playing the game, particularly the the first uh, like big narrative quest that you're sent on it. You're asked to investigate some regional phenomenon that's mm. happening in four different parts of the country. And as you start to investigate these regional phenomenon, they are all very I just felt like a deep similarity or uh, whether it's intentional or not, like the things that were happening just reminded me of stuff we were seeing happening in our real world around climate change. Mm. Like these are all like big, you know, this an area that had historically been, um, you know, cold, but like not, you know, very livable. And the people were able to make a life for themselves is suddenly being racked with like really intense snowstorms. Um, mm-hmm. The desert areas get, it's like getting hit with these like incredible heat waves during the day, dust storms and tornadoes. There's forest fires. Like there are things that uh, your climate phenomenon that are happening in these regions and the way people are pulling together around them. It, it all just like really struck me as being I, like, I was like, I don't know if this is intentional or if there's an actual like allegory for climate change happening here, but it was just reminding me of things that were seeing happen in our world right now. And so I Googled (laughs) just like seeing if this was something Mm. anyone else had picked up on or if anyone else was thinking about this. I just Googled Tears of the Kingdom Climate Change. Yeah. And I came across this piece uh, written by Fran Ruiz uh, for The Escapist called In Tears of the Kingdom, Everyone is Chill About the Second Apocalypse for Better or Worse. (laughs) Um, And one of the things that Fran was talking about in the piece is uh, the specific place and time that Tears of the Kingdom takes place, as you were touching on, is like people are already in a process of rebuilding and there is this resiliency that the community has around them. And Fred was actually drawing parallels to the way we have gone through the pandemic mm. and now are seeing some of these like more drastic effects of climate change that are happening in the world and and sort of the both the ways people are approaching that and this kind of like in-between apocalypses mm. that we kind of feel like we're living through and how some of that gets paralleled in the game. Mm. And and Fran is also kind of positing in the piece whether or not um, the pandemic had an impact. I mean, obviously, the, the people writing this game and making this game uh, lived through the pandemic during the process of making the game and whether or not we're actually seeing some of that show up in the way characters in the game are behaving. But a few things that they noted is like how much the game relies on scientists and the idea that he, like people are... You know, you go out on this main quest being driven by a scientist and researcher yeah. telling you we need to learn more about this phenomenon. How many data-driven decisions and research-based decisions characters are making in the game? Um, it's just really interesting, yeah. I think. I don't I don't know. I haven't finished the story or anything, so it's hard for me to make a definitive point or say the game is definitely saying one thing or the other. But it created some interesting parallels that have got me kind of like thinking it's just kind of cool to see that a game even a game like legend of zelda could be drawing inspiration from these places totally ah it's everything everywhere all at once (laughs) (laughs) um but let's talk a little bit about um uh, about link yeah himself as a character um the narrative link and zelda 
Uh, I wanted to give you a chance to speak about this because I know uh, Link is a non-binary icon, (laughs) a trans icon, some might say, whether or not uh, some of the angry cis gamers want to believe it or not. Um, So yeah, what what are your thoughts on Link as a a trans icon? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as a trans person, I think from how I was describing my history with this game series earlier. Um, oh no, I'm already starting to tear up. I think it's just hitting me. Oh boy. It's just like, he's always been someone, I think obviously as a silent protagonist, he's designed to be someone that you can project yourself onto. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of us in the trans masculine community um, specifically have loved Link because he portrays a kind of masculinity that isn't dependent on uh, hyper-masculine stereotypes to be seen as valid. Um, I think, um, you know, he has a femininity to him. He has a softness. He has a goofiness. Um, even in the animations of him cooking or him uh, eating like he'll just do things in a very cute and funny way. He'll have very silly facial reactions to things. Um, like he's not afraid to, to look goofy or, you know, there's, um, a, you know, uh, not perfect representation, but there's definitely some really messy and outright problematic ways that this has been handled in previous games, particularly in breath of the wild. Um, but you know, there's the Gerudo people who are primarily women and they have a, a town um, where no men are allowed to enter. Um, and Link has to don feminine clothing to enter this town. Um, he never expresses shame or discomfort at wearing women's clothes. Um, there's a scene where a character compliments how pretty he looks in those clothes and he blushes and smiles. Like he is not afraid of any aspect of masculinity or has no, doesn't portray any insecurity in that. Um, I think for the, for the queer community, um, you know, there, there's this piece um, I was reading earlier by Linda Codega called a link between genders, trans joy and the legend of Zelda that's published on Gizmodo. Um, And they talk about how Link um, has often been described by folks in the queer community as an egg cracker. Um, And that's like someone or something that helps you realize that you're trans. Um, Mm. And so many people through playing Link um, have come to the understanding um, that they are trans or non-binary or both um, through playing as him. Um, and actually, uh, there was an interview in Time Magazine in 2016 um, from a Zelda producer who's been working on the games all the way back since Ocarina of Time, um, A.G. Onuma. Um, and he said, I wanted Link to be gender neutral. I wanted the player to think maybe Link is a boy or a girl. If you saw Link as a guy, he'd have more of a feminine touch or vice versa. If you related to Link as a girl, it was with more of a masculine aspect. I really wanted the design to encompass more of a gender-neutral figure. So I've always thought that for either female or male players, I wanted them to be able to relate to Link. Um, And I think that that really comes through and has made him someone that the queer community can really claim and feel empowered to play. Um, This piece is full of incredibly moving quotes from trans gamers, cosplayers, writers who have had some connection to the Zelda franchise. 
Um, and I was hoping to read a couple of these quotes because they, they really impacted me and, and they resonated so deeply with my own experience playing this character. Um, so one fan says, um, you know, on the, on Link being a, um, silent protagonist, um, says we're an active participant, even when we can't make narrative decisions because we get to decide who Link is. It's easy to discover yourself and your gender through a character like this and to make trans readings as the lack of traditional gender roles creates maybe for the first time you've seen a world where all you have to be is kind and brave. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, like when you think of the relationship between Link and Zelda, um, there are no real like gender roles. Like no one is like, Oh, Link as the guy you have to save the girl like in a lot of ways throughout the series like um you know zelda saves herself or helps you quote unquote save her by taking on other roles like uh like sheik for example um zelda's um kind of ninja spy alter ego who is kind of genderless or even presented as a boy. Like this game fucks with gender left and right, even while simultaneously Nintendo has characters like Birdo, which was the trans version of Yoshi that is supposed to be like a joke, uh, you know, poking at, um, you know, harmful stereotypes about trans women or even um there's the character of Vilia, which was an incredibly unfortunate choice in breath of the wild um the gerudo woman who um helps uh link uh get into the gerudo village by donning women's clothing and who you learn um is uh treated known by the town as quote-unquote the man who sneaks in um this is a, a trans woman character in the game and 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 she's treated horribly um but these characters exist and this game has in other ways constantly been playing with gender so it's like nintendo like make up your mind <laughs> like what is going on <laughs> um but anyway another another person says um to me link represents a kind of masculinity that i aim to embody protective but not possessive strong but not violent excitable and kind and adventurous um, this person uh, is a non-binary fan who actually took the name Link as their chosen name. The character meant that much to them. Um, That's there, were, really cool. there were a few people in this article who um, now go by Link due to the impact this character has had on their lives. They go on to say, I think there's a lot of pressure on trans men and trans masculine folks to be, quote unquote, traditionally masculine in order to pass. But many of those features can have a crossover with toxic masculinity. But if the main character of one of the most popular video games of all time can be a softer kind of man, then I can too. Oh, <laughs> I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> <laughs> that was really beautiful. <laughs> um, one more quote I want to read. Um, someone says, Head cannoning Link as non-binary makes me feel hope and makes me feel like my experience and my life have meaning. Their role as hero also empowers them. They are Hyrule's last hope. Not only that, Link's specific experiences make them the ideal hero for the ages, time and time again. And none of that relies on gender or sex. It relies on Link. That is extremely powerful to me and brings me immense joy and hope because in our world, trans and non-binary people are the future. 
They bring beauty and perspective and wonder and joy that is both unique to their experience and also tied inextricably to the overarching human experience. It makes me hope that one day people in our world can see us the way Zelda and Hyrule see Link <laughs> as a priceless and integral part of human life. So <laughs> that's all I have to say about it. <laughs> um, uh. You know, it's it's hard feeling. It's hard being trans right now uh, in the world. And as much as we tell ourselves and each other that we've always been here, um, it can be hard to to hold on to that hope in a world that's intent on pushing us out and eradicating us. And so I think this game speaks to the overwhelming power of representation, even if it's mm -hmm. not, I mean, canonically, we have a producer of the game talking about how Link was always meant to be gender neutral. Um, but that that portrayal of that heroism doesn't have anything to do with gender or sex, that someone can be can be read as either and still seen as, you know, priceless and integral, an integral part of human life. Uh, we need those reminders more than ever. So, um, you know, I'm really proud to be a lifelong Zelda fan and I'm really happy to be playing this game and to have a character like Link that we can all identify with and look up to. Yeah, that's incredibly, incredibly powerful and uh, important and so cool that this this series has existed in this way. And it's it was really it's really cool to see that quote from the producer and to hear that these these were things that they were even building into the character from the beginning. I don't think it I think it only adds to it. Right. Yeah. I think I think headcanon, um, despite what some of the uh, the haters will say, mm. I think can be really powerful, especially for LGBTQ folks who don't get as much representation, like sometimes building up those headcanons and seeing yourself in things and having a queer reading of things can be like, it's inc clearly incredibly transformative and powerful for these folks who are playing this game. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's the only way to get that kind of representation when it's not put in media as mm. frequently and as thoroughly as it should be. Um, and I just, I think anyone who wants to try to take that reading away from people, uh, you're an asshole. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Like, this reading doesn't hurt your version of the game. Go read it however you want. Mm, it's the mm -hmm. whole fucking point of Link, yep. as has been made very clear. Like, he is meant to be read however you want to read him. He's meant for you to insert yourself into his shoes. And I think that's really special that people are getting this out of this out of this game, out of these games, and have been for some time. It's mm -hmm. really fucking cool. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing those <sighs> quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Linda. <laughs> writing an awesome article yeah that's that's a great piece uh gizmodo go check it out give them the click a link between genders trans joy and the legend of zelda and we should link that in the uh in the episode description mm -hmm. too so people can click through and read it read the whole piece really fucking cool well, Spencer, we have said so much about this game, and yet I feel we could probably talk for an hour more <laughs> um we think you should go play yeah. Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, which is not something I ever thought I'd be sitting here saying <laughs> know, right? uh, after my experience with Breath of the Wild. But I'm so happy to have uh, had my opinion on 
on that reversed mm-hmm. and to now be Breath of the Wild curious. Sam. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Pride Month. <laughs> but uh, but I'm going to probably need to put another 80 or so hours into the Tears of the Kingdom <laughs> before I even get to that place. So yeah. uh, catch me uh, next year, maybe. Totally. <laughs> when I decide to dive into Breath of the Wild. Um, But time is up for today's session of Pixel Therapy. Thank you all for tuning in. And we hope that listening to our thoughts and feelings gave you some thoughts and feelings of your own. If you want more Pixel Therapy, come check us out at patreon.com slash pixel therapy pod, where again, you can snag that monthly bonus episode for just $2 a month and get opportunities to get involved with the community and and influence the show directly. If you're not up for contributing monetarily, but you enjoyed this episode, you can always show your support for free by again, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts please pretty please uh, and following us on twitter and instagram at pixel therapy pod that stuff really does help a small podcast like us and you can keep up with all of this stuff and more by visiting our website at pixeltherapypod.com finally since you like to put our money and our energy where our mouth is we end every episode with a recommended side quest uh this month we've got a mutual aid request for you coming out of richmond virginia uh richmond's in dire need of diy spaces for dance music and for black people Any donation helps as it will go towards helping DJ and producer Herbert Vasquez build a queer and trans-focused DIY space where music and community can thrive. Um, You can learn more about this project by visiting GoFundMe.com. The link is Queer DIY Space in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, We'll drop that link in the show description, um, but that's Queer DIY Space in Richmond, VA uh, at GoFundMe. Thank you for that side quest, Spencer. That is our show for today. So go forth, run a story mission, level up some stats, and don't forget to hug an NPC every now and then. We'll be back soon with some more Pixel Therapy. Therapy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.